Well, good morning, everyone. So as uh, Dave has told us, the title of this class is Christ and His Bride. Let me just read very quickly what the assignment uh, is intended to cover. The church is described as the bride of Christ, and your class uses parallel to help us better understand our relationship with Christ. Using stories of marriage in the Bible and a historical understanding of ancient Jewish marriage customs, draw parallels between betrothal and marriage in Bible times. Teach us about betrothal, bride price, preparing a place for the bride, the return of the groom for his bride, the marriage and the wedding feast. Explain how this ancient process applies to Christ and his bride. Encourage us to remain faithful to Christ while we wait for him. Also explore the other side of this parallel and help us better understand our marriages through the example of Christ and his bride. Uh, Before I get into this, I just want to give you a quick little assignment. I have every intention of leaving, oh, 10, 15, 20 minutes at the tail end of this class today. And as we're going through the material, in particular thinking about the parallels between uh, ancient Jewish uh, marriage customs and what we find in the New Testament, I'd like for you to, uh, to be thinking about the parallels you also see between Jesus and the church and, and the marriage relationship, and I'm hoping to sort of open this up for discussion toward the end. It'll depend on how fast I can move through my notes, I suppose. So maybe we'll get to it. I'm hoping we will, because I think we could all benefit from hearing each other's ideas and uh, insights into the parallels you see between the two. I plan to just proceed from here talking about the the history of the Jewish marriage ceremony. We're going to link that narrative with Christ and his church. And then I want to draw out two specific uh, lessons uh, about marriage from Christ. We're going to talk about spiritual adultery and divorce and how it parallels physical adultery and divorce. And then we'll talk at the last about denying oneself and taking up the cross. So let's jump into the Jewish history of marriage or the Jewish customs around betrothal and marriage. And not to beat a dead horse, but I always think it's good to go back and uh, reactivate that gray matter by just reviewing some simple concepts to get our minds going. So I'll just ask the simple question. I don't expect a response, but what is marriage? What is marriage? From the Bible's viewpoint, marriage is a covenant. It's a legally binding agreement with spiritual and emotional ramifications. In Proverbs 2.16, Solomon warns his son about the immoral woman, the seductress who flatters with her words, a married woman who sets her sights on the son of a king. Such a woman, Solomon says, forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Forgets the covenant of her God. Now, of course, that phrase could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Solomon could mean the covenant that she has with God through the law of Moses, but it could also very well be that this represents the the marriage contract, so to speak, the covenant she has formed with her husband. And in her pursuit of the heir, this woman, this woman forgets the covenant she had formed with her husband. This covenant with God as its witness. Because marriage is a covenant witnessed by God. In the book of Malachi, in the second chapter, a passage that, uh, that was referred to, uh, I'm sure, in other classes, God says this through the prophet Malachi, And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. That's Malachi chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. 
Divorce was ravaging the people of God in the days of Malachi, so much so that God dismissed their worship. He would not receive their worship and rejected their sacrifices. The tears and sorrow of women treated with callousness and treachery had effectively extinguished the fires on the altar of burnt offering. The wife who had been the companion of a sacred covenant, who had borne children to her husband, and who had shared his joys and sorrows, his hardships and days of darkness, now was being rejected for a heathen woman, a worshiper of foreign deities. What God considered a sacred, binding agreement between two people had been cavalierly cast aside for personal pleasure. Lest we be mistaken, though, marriage is more than just a legally binding document, a a formal arrangement, a contractual agreement. It's far more than that. Jesus says in Matthew 19 and 6, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. When two people are married, something happens on the spiritual plane that far exceeds a piece of paper or the consummation of the marriage union. God ties these two people together in ways that only He can unravel. And woe to the man or woman who attempts to undo what has been wrought by God. So what is marriage? It's a covenant. A covenant witnessed by God. A covenant which consists of a legally binding agreement with spiritual and emotional ramifications. Now as we go back to the traditional Jewish customs surrounding betrothal and marriage... I'd like you to notice that there are are five uh, customs that comprised this system. First was the arrangement of marriage. Second was the betrothal ceremony. The third was the preparation period between the betrothal and the wedding. The fourth is the wedding ceremony. The fifth is the wedding feast. I'll just repeat those. The arrangement of the marriage, the betrothal ceremony... The preparation period period between the betrothal and wedding, the wedding ceremony, and the wedding feast. So let's take each of these one by one. And what I plan to do is just go through the historical accounts as we have them. And we'll draw the parallels a little bit later, probably about 15 minutes from now. We'll begin to notice those parallels. But I think as I go through this description, you're going to begin picking up these parallels on your own. This was a very useful study for me. I was tangentially aware of these connections, but I became more aware of them the deeper into the study I got. So let's talk first about the arrangement of marriage. In the case of uh, of Jewish families, they arranged some of the examples we see of marriages in in, in the Bible. So we see arranged marriages in the Bible. We see that in the case of Isaac and for Ur, the son of Judah. Those are two examples in Genesis 24 and Genesis 38, respectively. And arranged marriages highlight the nature of the marriage covenant as a commitment intended to outlast youthful infatuation. So parents arranged marriage so that they would guard their children against making a hasty decision fueled by all those things that we as older people understand. Arrangements were generally made between the father of the groom and the father of the bride often without the involvement of the couple. In some cases, older bachelors made arrangements directly with the father of the prospective bride, sometimes even during her prepubescent years. Though the father of the bride typically handled the arrangements, the selection was ultimately approved by the bride before the betrothal was entered. Once the selection was made... The parents prepared something that's called the ketubah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's K-E-T-U-B-A-H. So once the selection was made, the parents prepared the ketubah. 
This was a written contract between the families that depicted the terms of the marriage arrangements. The bride price to be paid by the groom and the obligations of both parties. Now the bride price must be understood or may be understood as a compensation given to the family for the loss of their daughter. So in other words, the prospective husband would be paying the bride's family for the loss of their daughter. The father enjoyed its usage temporarily, but the money reverted to the daughter at the father's death or in the event she were widowed. In addition to this, some grooms also gave gifts to the bride and her family at the acceptance of the marriage proposal. We see this in the case of of Abraham's servant. He presented Rebekah, Isaac's prospective bride, with jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. That's in Genesis 24-53. Shechem, when he was trying to make arrangements with the family of Jacob for his sons to marry into their family, Shechem pledged to give Jacob whatever he asked for in the way of a bride price and gifts in order to secure the hand of Dinah. Thus marriage and its attendant economic investments brought the bride and groom's family into a legal relationship with one another. This was as much a business relationship as it was a familial relationship. When Hamer negotiated for the hand of Dinah on the behalf of his son Shechem, and I think I said Shechem was the father, but he wasn't. Hamer was the father. Shechem was the son. When Hamer was negotiating for the hand of Dinah, he presented the intermarriage of these two families as an economic arrangement. Hamar proposed, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take your daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourself. That's Genesis chapter 34, verses 9 and 10. So for this reason, the marriage covenant was traditionally seen by the Jews as not only between two individuals, but between two families. It was essentially a business arrangement. Arrangement. So with the families having arranged the marriage, the marital contract was effected in two stages. So all these agreements have been reached, and now we enter into the next two phases, which generally speaking are known as the betrothal phase and ultimately the wedding ceremony. So once all these matters were negotiated, the couple would move on to the betrothal ceremony. The groom would go to the go to his bride's father's home. He would take with him three things. He would take with him a large sum of money or many expensive items to pay the price for the bride. The betrothal contract with his promises to the bride, also known as the, the ketubah, was carried with him as well as a skin of wine. So he brought money, he brought a contract, and he brought a skin of wine. And they went through a special ceremony that consecrated the betrothal. The bride and groom would each participate in a ritual immersion in water, symbolizing a spiritual cleansing. The ceremony itself would consist of vows, promising to be married, and the exchange of valuable tokens memorializing these promises. As a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and bride would drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction had been pronounced. And that benediction would have sounded something like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who hath sanctified us by his commandments and enjoined us about incest and forbidden the betrothed, but allowed us those wedded by the marriage ceremony and betrothal. Blessed art thou who sanctifies Israel by the wedding ceremony and betrothal. So the betrothal ceremony consisted of these components and then it ended with a feast and then following the feast each party would return to his or her respective home. Now once betrothed the couple's relationship could only be ended by divorce. For all intents and purposes, the couple, by our standards, were married. 
Only they had neither occupied the same residence nor engaged in sexual relations. Those were the only two items that remained to be accomplished. They were not living together and they had not consummated the marriage. But the betrothal was considered an act as sacred as the marriage itself. Any breach of it would be treated as adultery. Nor could the ban be dissolved except as after marriage by regular divorce. This is why Joseph, though only betrothed to Mary, is called her husband. Joseph, when he discovered Mary was pregnant during their betrothal, contemplating, contemplated putting her away secretly, which is an idiom for divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 29, lends further support to the concept that once betrothed, a couple belonged exclusively to one another. So the betrothal was a contract in which a woman was pledged to marry her suitor. The suitor purchased his bride through the paying of a bride price, and the relationship could only be dissolved by divorce. Following the betrothal ceremony was the preparation period. This occurred between the betrothal ceremony and the marriage ceremony. After the marriage covenant had been established, the groom would leave the home of the bride and return to his father's house. There he would remain separate from his bride for a period of 12 months. The groom occupied himself with the preparation of living accommodations in his father's house to which he could bring his bride. Typically this involved adding a room to his father's residence. While the groom was preparing their residence, the bride prepared herself for married life in three ways. She uh, was observed during this time period to confirm her purity for at least nine months. I think the reason why is self-evident. She consecrated herself by examining her life to ensure all prior relationships were severed and all of her life activities were reoriented toward marriage. Finally, during this time period, she made her own wedding garments. So both the groom and the bride prepared themselves for their new life together following the betrothal. Following this time of preparation was, of course, the marriage ceremony. At the end of this period of separation, the groom would come to take his bride to live with him. Now here's a really interesting little wrinkle. The groom awaited permission from his father. Once his father approved, the groom, his best man, and other male escorts would leave the groom's father's house and conduct a torchlight procession to the home of the bride. Although the bride was expecting her groom to come for her, she, like the groom, did not know the exact time of his coming. While she and her wedding party waited, they kept their oil lamps burning late into the night, since the bridegroom customarily came at night. To forewarn the bride of the groom's arrival, there would be a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes, followed by the sounding of a shofar, a trumpet made from the horn of a kosher animal. The groom's announcement set in motion the traditional wedding ceremony. The bride was prepared by bathing, anointing, and given clothing with special adornments, that clothing that she had been preparing during her time uh, between the betrothal and the marriage ceremony. She was then escorted from her father's house to the accompaniment of song, dance, musical instruments, and since it usually took place in the evening, torchlight. After the groom received his bride together with her female attendants, the enlarged wedding party would return from the bride's home to the groom's father's house. Upon arrival there, the wedding party would find that the wedding guests were already assembled. The wedding ceremony was held under a canopy. 
The essential element of the wedding was the introduction of the bride into the groom's house where the canopy was set up. Seven blessings were pronounced on the couple and the wedding contract was read. The ceremony was once again sealed with a cup of wine to indicate the great joy that would accompany the festive celebration. And of course, following the ceremony was the consummation of the marriage. After the ceremony, the bride and groom would then be escorted by other members of the wedding party to the bridal chamber. Prior to entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled so that no one could see her face. While the groomsmen and bridesmaids would wait outside, the bride and groom would enter the bridal chamber alone. There, in the privacy of that place, they would enter into the physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage that had been covenanted earlier. After the marriage was consummated, the groom would announce the consummation to the other members of the wedding party waiting outside the chamber. These people would pass on the news of the marital union to the wedding guests. So we've had the arrangement. We've had the betrothal. We've had the time of preparation. We've had the marriage ceremony. And finally, we have the wedding feast. The final custom of the ancient Jewish wedding system was the wedding feast. Upon receiving the good news of the marriage's consummation, the wedding guests would feast and make merry for the next seven days. The wedding feast consisted of seven full days of food, music, dance, and celebration. And the wedding feast was for the benefit of the groom. All the guests were expected to compose songs or sing songs to the groom. During the seven days of the wedding festivities, the bride remained hidden in the bridal chamber. At the conclusion of these seven days, the groom would bring his bride out of the bridal chamber, now with her veil removed, so that all could see who his bride was. This was the moment for the groom to display her beauty to his friends and the attendees in return would show her respect and admiration. At the conclusion of the feast, the couple would live as husband and wife the remainder of their lives. So as I've gone through this description, I think it's fairly clear in many instances the parallels we can draw between our role as the bride of Christ, the church, and what we experience in Jesus Christ and what we anticipate in the future as we wait for our groom's return. So let's talk about these parallels between the Jewish marriage traditions and Christian doctrine and we'll incorporate some prophecy as well. The marriage between Christ and his church is an arranged marriage. From the time of the prophets onward, God conceptualized his relationship with his people as a marriage. One example is in Isaiah chapter 54 verses 5 and 6. In that passage, the prophet draws the comparison between marriage and God's relationship with his people. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were, re- when you were refused, says the Lord your God. God compares the nation of Israel to a woman spurned by other suitors. Indeed, God took Israel under his wing when Egypt was poised to destroy her. Therefore, God urges his people to think of themselves as, to think of him as their, as their knight in shining armor, the one who loved her when she was in a low moment. So God conceptualizes his relationship with his people as a marriage relationship. Another example is in the book of Hosea. Hosea depicts Israel as a perpetually unfaithful spouse. Though God formed a covenant with her at Mount Sinai, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Israel had cheated on him for centuries with other gods and goddesses. 
Hosea chapter 2 is a very interesting chapter insofar as God juxtaposes. He sets side by side a stern tone of rebuke on the one hand in the first 13 verses with strains of love and mercy in the final nine verses. He tells us that Israel would suffer real consequences for her serial adultery, but God, the jilted lover, would seek reconciliation by drawing her back with cords of love. Therefore am I now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. That's Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. And all of her old lovers, the bales would be removed and a new covenant would be formed. God pledged to those under this new covenant I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. As is the case in so many of these Old Testament prophecies, it's difficult to escape the messianic over undertones of what lies ahead because God's Because God the Father arranged His Son Jesus' marriage with the church. If we stay in that second chapter of Hosea, we see this predicted in verse 23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those uh, called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 as proof of God's intent to reconcile with his people, specifically the remnant which walked by faith, as well as the Gentiles. This reconciliation was ultimately accomplished in Jesus Christ, as Peter acknowledges in his first epistle. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. It was God's intent, not just in the time of the prophets, but from the very beginning to arrange this marriage with his son Jesus Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 4. And the parable of the wedding feast, which we'll talk about in more detail a little bit later. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Matthew 22 verse Verse 2. The origins of the church's marriage to Christ is not a Hollywood romance. Rather, it's the old fashioned arranged marriage conceived by God the Father and brought to pass through His providence. So we are in an arranged relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that has been arranged by God the Father. So let's talk about now the betrothal process. The betrothal of Jesus with his church took place during his ministry. Remember, to, be, to prepare for a betrothal, both the bridegroom and the bride participated in a ritual immersion in water. When John the Baptist objected to baptizing Jesus, here's how our bridegroom responded. Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In the cornerstone passage on Christian marriage, Paul says Jesus sanctifies and cleanses his bride, the church, with the washing of water by the word. The writer of Hebrews alludes to this in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The washing of water by the word must be a reference to baptism. A washing which does not remove the filth of the flesh, 
but pledges a good conscience toward God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism in the name of Jesus Christ initiates our participation in the betrothal of the church to Christ. So to prepare for this betrothal, both the bridegroom and the bride have participated in a ritual immersion in water. Among the Jews, a betrothal ceremony contained three essential elements. The bride price. The bridegroom was effectively purchasing his bride from her family. The ketubah, which was the betrothal contract that recorded the promises made between the families and the couple. And a cup of wine. And don't forget that at this time additional gifts could be bestowed upon the bride and her family. But... The betrothal consisted of these three main elements plus additional gifts if the groom saw fit. The bride price seems glaringly obvious, does it not? It was the price that Jesus paid when he sacrificed his body on the cross. Acts 20.28 The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In shedding his blood on the cross, Jesus has paid our bride price. We are betrothed to him. We belong to him. And he has formed a betrothal contract with us. Remember, this document contractually obligated the two parties to keep certain promises. And what does Jesus promise to his bride? Well, we could go on and on about that, could we not? Let's just take one example. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. So Jesus has formed this betrothal covenant with us. He has made promises to us, and we, in turn, make promises to Him. Our betrothal to Christ is sealed with a cup of wine. At the Last Supper, Jesus said to His disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a parallel between the betrothal wine and the wine shared by the couple at the close of the wedding ceremony. That's quoted from Matthew chapter 26 verse 29. Paul alludes to the betrothal wine in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now many connect the cup of blessing in this passage with the man-made traditions that develop for the celebrating of the Passover. However, the cup of wine drunk at the conclusion of the betrothal ceremony was also called a cup of blessing. Given the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that Paul is urging the Corinthian Christians to avoid any association with idolatry, which is metaphorically described as harlotry or adultery, connecting the fruit of the vine during the Lord's Supper with the betrothal's cup of blessing makes a great deal of sense to me. So Jesus, in drinking the fruit of the vine on the night of his betrayal, drew a symbolic connection between the betrothal ceremony and his relationship with the church. Our bridegroom Jesus has given his bride additional gifts. He's not only paid the bride price, but he has showered us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 3. In the following verses, Paul goes on to describe all the gifts that our groom has given us. By Jesus, God adopts us into his family. We become a part of that family of God. By the blood of Jesus, we're redeemed from our slavery to sin. Through Jesus, God has more fully revealed himself and his wisdom. And of course, in verses 13 and 14, we receive the Holy Spirit 
who becomes a deposit which guarantees our bodies will one day be raised from the dead. A little bit later in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about other gifts that Christ has given to his church. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Jesus opened the treasuries of heaven, giving his betrothed all things that pertain to life and godliness, showering upon us blessings untold. So yes, we are betrothed, currently betrothed, to our groom, Jesus Christ. And we're now in that preparation period. That preparation period between the betrothal and the return of the groom. Jesus the bridegroom has gone to his father's home to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Notice in this passage that there is plenty of room in the Father's house for everyone. Remember, sometimes the groom would have to build on to his Father's house in order to accommodate his future bride. But in our Heavenly Father's house, there's plenty of room. He does not need to add on in order to accommodate his bride. And he pledges in this passage, Jesus pledges in this passage that we can trust him. He will keep his agreement. Just as God is faithful, Jesus is also faithful. So we do not need to wonder if he will return. He wants his bride to be with him. He will come back to receive his own. And like a betrothed virgin, the church during this time of preparation, is called to maintain purity. We could interpret this to mean literal sexual purity. We notice this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15-20. through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If we engage in sexual immorality, we enmesh the Lord in our sin. Our bodies are members of Christ. And when we commit sexual sin, we make the members of Christ the members of a harlot. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And all of these have the the undertones of the, the commitment that's made in that betrothal ceremony. Like the virgin bride who remains pure during her betrothal, we are to keep ourselves from sexual sin because we belong to Jesus. He has paid the bride price. But we also can interpret this to mean metaphorical purity, faithfulness to the Lord in a spiritual or doctrinal sense. To the Corinthians who were toying with various false doctrines, including their acceptance of false apostles, Paul writes this, For I am jealous with, of you, for you, with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. James rebukes his readers, calling them adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our objective during this time of preparation is to remain pure. 
to remain pure to our betrothal, so that Jesus might present His bride to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. During the time between the betrothal ceremony and the wedding, the bride must prepare herself to leave behind her former life for the sake of her husband. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like Rebecca, who left everyone and everything she knew behind in order to marry Isaac, the church is called to leave behind for this, leave all behind for the sake of our husband. Like the betrothed bride, the church spends this period preparing its wedding garments. We keep ourselves pure. We sever all former connections, so to speak. And like the betrothed bride, we spend this time preparing our wedding garments. The angels participating in the series of visions recorded in Revelation say this in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. According to John, who was observing this glorious scene, the bride's wedding garments consist of fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Following the church's betrothal to Christ, his bride prepares her wedding garments by performing good works. This is the purpose for our recreation in Jesus Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Jesus, our bridegroom, prepares a dwelling place for his church, we endeavor to maintain our purity, to consecrate our lives, and to clothe ourselves with good deeds so that we will honor him when he returns. And one day, one day the bridegroom will return to claim his bride. If you've got your Bibles open, please turn to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. In that passage is recorded the parable of the ten virgins. The ten virgins in this parable represent the bridesmaids who are responsible for preparing the bride to meet the bridegroom. Remember, it was customary for the bridegroom to call his bride at night. So the bridal party would keep lamps on hand. In this parable, half of the bridesmaids came unprepared for the bridegroom to show up at night. When the bridegroom's arrival is announced, those who are unprepared end up searching for oil in the middle of the night rather than tending to their duties. And their duties were to prepare the bride to go home with her husband and for the wedding ceremony. Because they were not prepared, they were shut out from the wedding ceremony. This is the third in a series of parables illustrating the same point. When a fig tree's leaves appear, you know that summer is near. A servant who knows his master's return is imminent will not mistreat his fellow servants while his master is delayed. And bridesmaids who know the bridegroom will likely appear at night come prepared with oil in their lamps. There is no reason for the church to be caught unawares when Jesus returns. It was customary in Jewish wedding tradition for the bridegroom's father to decide when the groom would bring his when the yeah, when the groom would bring his bride home. 
No one knows when the bridegroom will return except for his father. This was the custom uh, among the Jewish culture. Which takes us to Matthew chapter 24 verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Because the Father alone knows the day and hour, the bride must be ready at all times for the bridegroom's return. A few verses later in Matthew 24, 44, Jesus admonishes, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The bridegroom arrived with a shout and with a trumpet, and Jesus also will arrive with a shout and a trumpet. Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the bridegroom arrives with a shout and with the blowing of a trumpet. And when that bride hears the shout and the announcement from the trumpet, the wedding ceremony commences. The bathing, anointing, and dressing of the bride in special garments prior to the marriage ceremony parallels several New Testament passages. In Revelation 7, John sees a proleptic vision of Christ's ultimate victory over his enemies. John sees those who remain faithful during the great tribulation depicted in the six seals, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. And as I noted in chapter 19, verse 8. John's observation about the garments worn by the bride, that those garments consisted of the righteous acts of the church. By washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, our acts are made righteous, and therefore we are made ready for our marriage to Jesus. Paul expresses the same idea in a little different way. He urges us to put on Christ. We first put on Christ in baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 We are constantly in the process of putting off the old man with his deeds and putting on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Colossians 3.9 and 10 Consistently clothing ourselves with Christ is a necessary component of preparing for his return. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. When the Lord comes to claim His bride, our garments must be clean and we must be clothed with Christ. And of course, following the marriage ceremony is the consummation of the marriage. The bridal party stood outside as witnesses. And the most important witness was the friend of the bridegroom who was roughly equivalent to the, the best man in our traditional wedding party. John the Baptist tells us that he played this role. He is the friend of the bridegroom. He explained to his disciples in John chapter 3 verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. John and perhaps John alone witnessed the Spirit descending on Jesus. From that point forward, John pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Christ, the one we must follow. 
And as this quote from John 3.29 alludes, John saw himself in this capacity. He saw himself as a witness to the manifestation of the Son of God and the pending arrival of his kingdom on earth. He is the friend of the bridegroom. Once the marriage has been consummated, a feast follows. What remains following the return of Jesus is the great wedding feast commemorating our marriage to Christ and the, etern- and the eternity which lies ahead. In Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, we have recorded for us the parable of the wedding feast. It was a great honor to be invited to a royal wedding. But those who were on the original guest list treated the invitation with indifference or contempt or outright hostility. In the parable, the original guest list represents the Jewish people. They were the first to receive an invitation to the great wedding feast. And as a consequence for their refusal, God used the Roman army as a tool of his vengeance and destroyed Jerusalem. So the king resorts to inviting the unworthy, the Gentiles, to join his celebration. The wedding hall was then filled to the brim with guests. But one guest stood out to the king. Virtually no one, including those from among the noble and wealthy, had garments fit for a royal wedding. In light of this, kings were accustomed to providing garments for their guests. But a guest who did not put on the wedding garment provided by the king was not only unprepared and poorly clothed, but he was also guilty of a highly insulting act. The king responds as we would expect. Bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like the parables of the fig tree, the cruel servant, and the ten virgins, this parable contains a warning. If we accept an invitation to the greatest royal wedding of all, we need to put on the garment God provides. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Revelation 19 and 9. An angel says to John, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And as the wedding feast draws to a close, we arrive at the moment when the groom presents his bride. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 11, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away by the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And so the groom displays the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of his bride to all witnesses. John saw the magnificence of the church's beauty in that moment, shown to him through prophetic vision. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we aspire to. We aspire to be a part of that bride one day. We're in the betrothal period, the preparation period, We have tasks ahead of us, but let us not forget what we aspire to, what we have our eyes set upon. It's 9.59. I'll give you an early break. Thank you for your attention.